And this is the mindset that I want to put people in. And if you're a student, you're going to embrace this. But for you to convey it to older generations, you're going to need this knowledge. My dad raised me with, son, your handshake is important. Your word is bond. And let your work do the talking for you. That was my dad. My dad, one of the most successful people in the candy business space, entrepreneur. He grew a very large peanut brittle company uh, that sold, sold to a, a large worldwide corporation. And the thing about it is my dad was right for a long time. But in 2020, if you were waiting to let your work do the tour, the, 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 if you're waiting for your work to do the storytelling for you, you are going to be drowned out by the megaphone, the fakers till they make it, the un people selling unicorns and rainbows, and all those that are putting it out there. And so the way that I look at this is the old school way was, hey, let my work do the talking for you. The new school way is let people in and have access to you and put your story out there so that we can celebrate those that are doing good things. How do you navigate change? It's a question we think about often and one that today's world expects us to be comfortable with. The challenge, however, is where do you begin and how do you develop the mindset and skill set to be successful? Welcome everyone to the Sprint to Success with Design Thinking podcast. I'm your host, Saba Kidwai. Join me each week as I share the stories and strategies from the world's leading researchers and practitioners about why they believe the answer lies in practicing design thinking. One of the most powerful yet scarce conversations about design is the design of our own lives. The ability to empathize with yourself, to wonder how might I, to test and to iterate as you discover and deepen your interests can take you down pathways you didn't even know exist. Thinking about my career from a design perspective was a game changer. And if there's one significant turning point that changed the type of work I was doing, it was using today's social media platforms to connect locally and globally with anyone, anytime, anywhere. That ability to empathize with myself led me to discover the type of work that brought me joy, the type of work that didn't really feel like work, and the type of work that would allow me to be with people who wanted to work on the challenges that we were passionate about designing solutions for. I went from spending hours on job boards to spending more meaningful time online, building connections and communities that would allow me to work with organizations who shared my values. It would allow me to create new job titles and discover positions that I never even knew were a thing. This was really transformational because if you think about it, most of us build our network over time through proximity people in our businesses, people we meet at school, university, or through family and friends. Not only do online platforms expand our networking opportunities, but they open up people from other industries that you may have never come in contact with. Connecting with people from other industries really opened up my thinking and made me realize that so many of us are working on the same challenges, yet from different angles. And that collaboration can be really eye-opening in terms of the kinds of solutions that you can bring back to your organization. Four years ago, while trying to understand how people were leveraging Snapchat, I came across the work of Brian Fanzo, or as everyone knows him online, iSocialFans. Brian is a digital futurist who translates the trends of tomorrow to inspire change today. He's currently the founder of iSocialFans, which has helped launch digital and influencer strategies with the world's most iconic brands like Dell, EMC, Adobe, IBM, UFC, Applebee's, and SAP. Brian believes that we all need to pick up our phones and embrace his mantra, press the damn button. In doing so, he says, we share our stories with the world. Through that, we build trust, awareness, and connection with our communities. Today, I'm so excited to have Brian here to share how we as individuals, especially students or those looking to make a pivot during this time where we've experienced a lot of uncertainty and maybe a lot of things that used to be the way they were, maybe no longer are, especially from a professional standpoint. 
He's here to help you see how you can use his strategies to design a new or deepen your professional pathway. The serendipitous timing of this episode is a testament to pressing the damn button and sharing your story. I'll let Brian take it from here and tell you what I mean by that. Yeah, so it's so funny. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, and I'm excited to have this chat. You know, and for me, like, you know, I'm coming, uh, coming on your podcast, you're coming on my podcast. And, and we've talked for years, it feels like, on uh, bringing our worlds together and a lot of the, you know, the thought process. And we share a lot of similar vision, but also different worlds. And so I was researching, trying to figure out, like, okay. And I found a picture when we hung out and we got ice cream together, uh, you know, last year um, out in California. And, and I was like, Where, when was the first time, like, we connected? And sure enough, I opened up Snapchat. And we wasn't big on saving old Snap connections, but uh, apparently we, we saved what the first couple interactions. So August 25th, 2016 was the first time we connected on uh, Snap. And I remember being, you know, like for me, the educator space, um, connecting on Snap and really sharing like a lot of that, like redesign the thought process and things that are going differently, but also, you know, a peek into that world um, inspired me to be like, oh, I want to connect with you everywhere. But that talking about like little serendipity, like I didn't realize that until last night doing research. And I was like, what's the chance that we are, are, are recording these episodes exactly four years after we first connected? Like I mentioned before, connecting with individuals like Brian opened up my world as an educator. As educators, we're on a mission to prepare students for their future. And individuals like Brian give us a real-world look into what challenges and opportunities exist across different industries, and more importantly, what skills are needed to thrive within them. Like Brian mentioned, we met for the first time in person three years later in downtown Palo Alto. So of course I had to do a quick video to share the moment. And it wasn't until after recording the video that we realized we had an audience behind us of two university students from Stanford. They happened to overhear us while enjoying some ice cream. And I imagine you'll be just as surprised as we were to hear what they had to say after listening. In the next two clips, I'm going to share what Brian shared while we were out together in Palo Alto and how the students responded to his ideas. Hi everyone, I'm so excited to introduce you to one of the first people I actually met on Snapchat. Brian Panzo, hello. And I'm gonna have him share with you guys one of the things that I really love that he shares um, and I'm just gonna let him take it. Sure, so my mantra is press the damn button. I believe everybody has a story to tell and it's about putting yourself out there. And for a lot of people, it's scary to do so. And, and trust me, it's scary for all of us. But I think one of the big things to do is you have to take baby steps to make it happen. And one of the most important things that I can advise is most people tell you to tell your story where your audience is. I'm going to tell you something different. Tell your audience where you are most comfortable first. Get comfortable telling your story and then eventually go to where your audience is. That might mean just FaceTiming with your family and friends more often to get comfortable being on video, looking at yourself because it's kind of weird looking at yourself into selfie video. But once you get comfortable, then go to where your audience is. Therefore, you have less barriers to entry and you get more comfortable and more understanding of how you can tell your story. So I love it. Press Sharing your story is so, so, so important. So these two cool people over here eating ice cream were listening to our video. What were your thoughts? Oh, I absolutely loved it. I thought the advice was awesome, especially um, bring your audience to where you are rather than going to where your audience is. I thought that was really good advice. Yeah, interesting perspective. Never really heard it like that before, but uh, <laughs> cool to pick that up just on the street. You know? What do you guys do? We're students at Stanford. You are. There we you just go. spent our whole time talking about students. What, is, what would you say is like the biggest challenge or the biggest fear you have about going into like your careers or just growing up in today's world? I mean, I have no idea what I want to do for a living. So I would say figuring that out first is my biggest concern right now. Um, but we'll see what awesome brings. yeah and like making sure that i can find joy in my life even though like everything we do is like so stressful and crazy all the time like at stanford but also like in the real world so making sure we can find time to like be on the street and eat ice cream and, like to meet people and stuff like that did you catch that one of the students said i have no idea what i want to do for a living that definitely took both brian and me by surprise because therein lies the greatest challenge that we're faced with today how might we help learners discover their interests, their strengths, and like they mentioned, what brings them joy to design a life and career of purpose? 
We're so fixated in our grammar of school, our routine structures that yes, may land you at Stanford, but as many students like the ones we just heard from are finding out the hard way, then what? Brian knows a little bit about that. He himself started his professional journey in a very linear, traditional fashion, only to realize it didn't have to be that way. I love the way you said that, and I appreciate the kind words. You know, it took me 34 years to figure part of that out. So hopefully my advice will help people get to that, uh, this realization, you know, earlier than I did. You know, for me, uh, school was very tough, you know, um, to the educators, the teachers that are out there. I'm sorry. I was the, uh, I was a student that got perfect attendance, yet oftentimes my seat had to be put in the hallway uh, because uh, as you'll notice, I talk fast, but I also love talking. I love people. Uh, and I, I had a tendency to talk a lot and really um, didn't really know my, my place there. So I was perfectly attendant yet, and every teacher knew me, yet I was really struggling through uh, high school and, and college for that matter. I, I got into a couple different colleges to play hockey, um, and I got in on probation for, um, for the, the grade side of the house. And you know, for me, you know, reverse engineering a lot of my life is what I do at this moment. Uh, but at the time, I didn't realize it. But one of the things that I learned or I look back on and I realized was in high school and in college, and college is a little bit more evident and easier to share, but in college, I was uh, you know, the assistant captain of my ice hockey team uh, at the small school in Virginia that I went to. I was the president of my fraternity and I was a computer science major. And I can tell you, nobody was a computer science major that played hockey. Nobody that played hockey was in a fraternity. Nobody that was in a fraternity was a computer science major. And what it was so beautiful for me was I never felt like I needed to fit in or find my one tribe. And I loved bringing these different groups of people together. Like a couple of my best friends, one of them was on my hockey team and two of them were, on, uh, were in my fraternity. And they're still, all these years later, 17 years later, are super close. And it was because of that world I brought together. And it was the same in high school. I, I, was, I, I tried out for, for plays. I was a DJ at a skating rink. I was on the baseball team and I surfed in the morning, right? Like that was like, I've always had that like, you know, tendency. And, and so for me, when I, you know, I got out of college, uh, I ended up getting a job at UPS delivering packages, actually an amazing union job that uh, paid really well because I couldn't get into a technology job. And, uh, and I don't think you even know this story, but I was um, wearing my fraternity letters after getting done with a full day of UPS, uh, standing in a grocery store. I had picked up milk to bring home and someone in front of me turned around and said, hey, what fraternity, like, where, where, where'd you go? And I said, and he was like, oh, one of my best friends went to that same fraternity, in the same fraternity, same college. And we talked a little bit and he's like, you know, do you know anything about cybersecurity? And I'm very honest and just kind of like my, and I was like, nope, not really. Didn't ever took a class. And he's like, have you ever heard of what a vulnerability is? I was like, nope, I can guess. He's like, what about intrusion detection? I was like, uh, he's like, could you get a security clearance? I was like, oh yeah, I have no, I, I think I was like, I, I never tried, but I think, and he was like, so I have an entry level help desk tech job that you, it's about cybersecurity. And the good news is I don't have to unteach you anything. So it would be brand new. And he's like, and if you can get a clearance, I would get you the job. And I interviewed the next day, got the job that day. It was an, you know, an, an entry level help desk position um, in the US government supporting um, actually the military ID card. So everybody got a military ID card. We ran the help desk for that military ID card. Um, and then about six or nine months into that role, on a Friday afternoon, the boss came in and he said, um, uh, raise your hand here if you're willing to go to Korea on Monday and teach our course. And so there was about 14 of us in the room and I happened to have my hand up first. And he's like, Brian, he's like, um, real quick, do you have a passport? And I was like, uh, no. I was like, I've been to the Caribbean like on cruises, does that count? And he's like, no. He's like, but you think you could pull this off? I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm confident I could pull it off. So I ended up getting a same day passport in Washington, D.C. the next day, waited out, like, it took eight hours to get it. And Sunday morning, I flew uh, on my longest flight ever from uh, D.C. to Atlanta, Atlanta to Seoul, Korea. I took a two-hour high-speed train down to Daegu, uh, Korea. And the entire time, I was learning what I was going to be teaching in this four-day course because although I was on the help desk, I had never trained or got in front of a class um, at all. I, I felt like I, could, I was comfortable. And so it was a four-day course. Um, they had to pass a test in the end. It was 25 U.S. military members that were stationed there. Um, and it was a cybersecurity course. And every night I went back to the room and really learned what I needed to teach the next day. It was one of those like moments. And I, um, I remember feeling very confident that I did a good job, but also very overwhelmed at like, 
how big of a responsibility that was in working with the military. Um, and I flew home uh, and I remember I got back to my office or I was actually on my way to the office on that Monday and I got a call from my boss at the time and the government lead and they said, um, so apparently you made an impression. The government lead said they would change our courses from once a month to four a month um, if you were willing, to, if they, we were willing to bring you on full time into that position. Um, and I can tell you, it was like four pay grades up from where I was at the entry level help desk. Um, eventually, within a year, the person that hired me became my employee. Um, I grew that role. I spent there in that same role for about eight years. I grew it to a team of 32 people running a multi-million dollar a year budget. Uh, the first 30 people that were on our global team were all older than I was. So although I was the manager and running a lot of these things, I was the youngest on the team. And uh, I, I tell that story a lot. To, I actually don't tell the story a lot, but I'm sharing it here because, you know, not only was it, you know, making your own luck and kind of figuring it out, but, you know, I took that opportunity. And during those times, you know, working for the government, making really good money, I traveled to 54 countries. And being someone that, you know, my first trip was the one I raised my hand for, you know, three trips to Iraq, two to Afghanistan. Uh, I've now been to 76 countries total. Um, but for me, it opened my mind to this world that I was either it was either stereotyped or media blasted what the world looked like. And uh, I can tell you, I've been to the Middle East 30 times. My favorite country in the world is a country uh, called Bahrain. It's a little island off of Saudi Arabia. Uh, I can navigate the country of Kuwait without a map. I've been to Kuwait so many times uh, and driven around Kuwait. And I think that was to me the, the start of like this idea of like what I was led to believe or what I had grown up into I should question or I should explore or I should really be curious, right? Like what, what's the curious element there? Um, but, you know, being able to have that and then being able to actually take it and implement it, you know, was a whole different, you know, scenario. And, you know, in that same vein, you know, my, my contract was coming to the end of the government and I was getting a promotion into a new role and nine years in cybersecurity, this is, you know, 2010 or 2011, 2012, um, cybersecurity has taken off. And, um, the, you know, the introduction ceremony when I was getting up there, they were like, Brian's the youngest that done blah, 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 blah. And Brian is set for life working in the government and cybersecurity. Uh, and it shook me to my core. I remember driving home and was like, I don't know if I want to do this for the rest of my life. Like, I loved working with the military, loved with the government, but I felt very closed in. You know, I felt like, man, I want to change the world. And, you know, sounds very, uh, you know, like fluffy, but and um, within two weeks, I decided to give up my security clearance uh, and leave that role and, you know, leave my, my government, you know, and I had just had my, my second child. Um, so uh, the nice thing was we were a government contractor owned by a European company. So we had a lot of days off. So I had accumulated something like 48 days off um, as my, my rollover days. Uh, and I said I was going to chase my dream job, which was a technology evangelist um, was my dream job because I grew up as a Guy Kawasaki super fan. Like I, Guy Kawasaki was my like spirit animal. I, people would be like, what do you want to do with like computer science? I was like, I want to do what Guy Kawasaki is doing with Apple and building the cult and, and having this role that was like close to the CEO and building these things. And I ended up getting that. Um, and this is actually something I've, I really haven't ever really shared this part was I couldn't get to that job. I, I really was working for that role. And I ended up finding a company through LinkedIn that had a job opening for like a role that was similar to that I wanted, but I didn't meet the qualifications because of course they wanted, you know, master's degree and a lot of these things. And, you know, even when I worked at the government, like they had to rewrite my positions because every time they would require like these levels of like master's degree and 10 years experience. And I was like, no master's degree and four years experience. And like, well, you're the best for the job. We'll help you rewrite it. And I was very blessed. I had a great couple of great bosses in those times. Um, but I took this entry level, um, not entry level. I took a, a, a training job at this data center company and during the interview, they were like, you are way overqualified for this. Like, what are you doing? And it was a big pay, big pay decrease. And I just said, like, I would, love, I would love for you to give me a chance for six months. And if after six months I prove myself, I would love the opportunity to have that job, that role that I believe I can do a job in. Um, three months in, uh, the CEO of the company came and said, um, I didn't think you, I thought you were full of a lot of talk, but uh, I would love to like align that to happen. Now I will tell you, it took like another 18 months for me to actually, you know, or I'd say another 12 months or so to actually be put into the role like that, that I was 
uh, reporting to the CEO, dotted line to the CMO, and a dotted line to the CIO. So I got to be involved on marketing. I got to be involved um, on the innovation side. My job was onboarding new employees and, and bringing new employees into this new culture of uh, sharing social businessly. We, uh, we were onboarding 12 new hires a week. That's how crazy this startup was. I mean, I, I was hired as employee 256. And in two years and 10 days is when I left, uh, we were over 600 employees. And so it was one of those worlds that like, and we were the typical startup that you hear about, right? Ping pong tables. We had like, you know, food truck Friday. We've, we did all the, the random things. Um, and it, I got that dream job, that technology evangelist. And um, it was amazing. It was like one of those things that like, wow, this is what I love to do. And then, um, you know, as the world has it, the company was getting purchased. And the company that was purchasing, it was like, I don't know what an evangelist does. Why do you not have sales quotas or KPIs? Like, what do you, why are you reporting to this role? Um, and that ended up being my last day at that job and my first day as an entrepreneur. And that's kind of like my role of where I've got today. And, and I think when I look at it, like, I like to say I'm like the before. It was something, you know, I think you, you and I connect. I really appreciate that. If you have a niche, if you, if like, if we've always heard riches are the niches. And I believe that is so true. Like, if you have one, own it, go all in, double down. But if you're like me and you don't have one and you kind of like explore, you can still find success. You just got to do it a little differently. And you'll kind of, in that, even in, within that story, like, you know, raising my hand, being willing to like take this massive risk where like I had never trained anything, right? Or even giving up my clearance and knowing that, hey, I can, I will find my way into that, that role. Um, and then for the last, you know, uh, it'll actually be next month will be, you know, six years as an entrepreneur. Uh, and I will say the entrepreneur six months, six years was, is the hardest of all of those things. Like I loved my big enterprise job, loved it, loved my startup job. And I am not one that says everyone should be an entrepreneur. I'm not one that says entrepreneurship is for everyone. Uh, I might even make the argument that uh, I still question sometimes if I, if entrepreneurship was the uh, best suited for me as I loved both of those roles. But you know, now I'm able to, you know, I, I call myself a digital futurist and I get to work with brands as a, as a keynote speaker. Uh, as, a, as a kind of a strategist around brand strategy. And then I do a lot of like influencer work um, with brand collaboration, brand ambassadorship. Uh, and really my mission is helping these brands and leaders see the synergy between innovation and humanity. I'm a big believer in that, that technology for technology is a mistake, but technology should make the world a better place. And if we do it correctly, we will. So that's my journey. It's, it's a wild one. And, and for anyone that says like, you have to find your passion or, or, or know what you want to do. Uh, someone would have told me, I didn't even know, I didn't even know a full-time public speaker was a job until five years ago, right? Like, I mean, like five years ago, someone was like, you know, people do that for a living. I was like, well, I've been on stages since 2005, but like, I've done it for brands and businesses. And, um, and so, for, you know, that's kind of my shout out to like, you're going to have, you're gonna have to carve your own path and figure it out as you go. But, uh, uh, the journey is just as fun as this, you know, the end result now, but there's nothing else I want to do for the rest of my life. This is, you know, I kind of found what I love to do and, uh, it's exciting to kind of get here and now be able to, you know, share and collaborate with, uh, the likes of yourself. Brian joins every other guest who's been on the podcast all of whom have shared that their creativity was the catalyst to identifying what their interests were that would then turn into their professional career. Like Brian shares, you don't just wake up one day and stumble into your passion or walk into a job that you love. You have to take the initiative. One of my favorite quotes on this is from Richard Branson, who advises, if somebody offers you an amazing opportunity, but you're not quite sure if you can do it, say yes then learn how to do it later. Brian believes that one of the best ways you can begin to take initiative is to press the damn button. I asked him to share a little bit about what he means by this and why he believes it's so important for us to do this today. So that, I love the way you set that up. That's so, and honestly, I don't think I've told the story that way before. It was something, you know, I think you, you and I connect at a very, you know, diff, a deep level. I, I, I feel like you're one of the smartest people I've actually ever had the chance of, you know, kind of collaborating and, and the way that you approach things um, inspires me. And, and I, I really appreciate that. And I, that's why for me telling the story that way, I think also kind of uh, compliments some of the things that I knew that we were going to lead into. And, and, you know, and part of that curiosity is that we hear this a lot. We hear a lot about, you know, failure is a necessary step to success. And I hate that statement only because 
failure sucks and it hurts. And when you're failing, you're, it is, it's miserable. I've failed many, many, many times. And so when I hear when someone says that, I'm like, well, if, I don't think it's a necessary, like if you can avoid failure, I, I'm all for it, right? Like, and, and we've heard the stories, like Michael Jordan got cut from the basketball team. Oprah Winfrey was told she could never um, make it on TV. Steve Jobs was fired from his own company, right? We've heard all those like big stories. But those were always after the fact, after the success of someone being who they were. And when I look at, you know, my journey, the, the, my, the curiosity, it was never the, I was never, I, it wasn't that I was not afraid to fail, it was, it was always a confidence that I knew I would never settle for failure. That to me was, and it was something that my, it was just raised. My dad kind of just raised me in the, and it wasn't like the pick up your son by your bootstraps type conversation. It was just like, things will be down, but you're going to find a way to be successful. And it was never really an option not to find a way, right? Like it wasn't like, you know, Hey, find your times to, you know, Hey, this is a time where you're going to realize you messed up and it's, the next couple of months or years are going to be tough, but like, you're going to get through this. And so for me, raising my hand, never being out of the country, really teaching a course that I never did. I, I always like, and this is a little bit of that computer science mindset. I always ask myself, what's the risk and what's the reward? And I ask myself that, 10 times a day. Like, I mean, like to the point where for a while I had so many little risk risk reward matrix on the wall in my other, in my other office that people were like, what is going on here? But like, I would approach something and say, okay, if I raise my hand and I take this initiative and I go to Korea and I teach this class and I bomb and I'm horrible at it, what is the risk? I'm not going to lose my help desk job. I'm not going to be embarrassed. They're going to be like, thank you for stepping up to the plate. You weren't a good fit, right? I also will know that's something I don't want to uh, pursue and it's not something I want to accomplish. What are the rewards? A, a trip to Korea. I've never been out of the country, right? Um, the second reward, and this is a funny one, like I was working at 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. shift. I hate mornings. I was like, Ooh, if I go to Korea, that means I get to work. Like I get to fly on a plane and be somewhere else. And I don't have to come into work at 6am. Like that was one of my, like the rewards that I looked at. It was like, you know, very small little things. And I said, you know what? The risks don't outweigh the rewards. I'm going to try it out. And sometimes you do that risk versus reward matrix, like in your head, right? Like immediately, like you can almost determine it. Other times I'll write it out and be very, uh, you know, um, you know, de determined to understand that. But the press the damn button, you know, it started off because, um, like one of the big th impacts on my career as an entrepreneur was although I had the success in my previous life, for whatever reason, and this is a lesson to learn, I had it in my head that I didn't want to lean on my life at the government for my success as an entrepreneur. I had it in my head. And for some reason, that, to me, that's very, very, looking back, I'm like, what was I thinking? Like, I, earned, I worked hard. I earned all of that. But I said, you know what? I'm not going to make that part of my story. So a lot of people Two year, within the last two years, discovered I worked for the U.S. government and I ran this giant team. Like it was, it was part of my story. Where like, oh yeah, I used to work for the government, and that was really where I had said it. Or I would mention like the countries I had been to. But for me, I, I really wanted to you know carve my own name, and and it was a little bit of ego to believe I could do that. It was also a little bit of like to me, like looking back, I'm like, why did I do that? Like I should have been proud of the work I had done, and it's okay to to leverage that in you know in a way that makes sense. But for what I had happened was. I wanted to create content, but I'm not a great writer. I'm not a great writer. I, I still, like, my dream job was actually, in high school, I wanted to be on ESPN as an anchor. And then I found out you had to be a journalist and good at journalism. And grammar and English is somewhere I struggled. And so I was like, oh, so I leaned into computers. And so I wanted to, to tell, I wanted to put things out there. And it was actually my, my second trip uh, to Kuwait that I wrote, like, my first blog for my company. And it wasn't even called a blog at the time, but, like, it was, like, um, like, news or write the editor or news the editor and I, I was just blown away I fell in love with Kuwait and the people and and I wrote this whole story about how amazing I had a time I had there and it was nothing like the media portrayed and I submitted it you know I, I spent a whole bunch of time on it because I was really worried and the boss came down and he said uh, actually sent an email and it was in quotations which you always know is bad he's like I love that you wanted to write for us in quotations um, but you write like you talk you tell too many stories and this is more about a journey and discovery than it is sales and marketing. We, it just doesn't fit. And I can tell you, it kicked in the gut. Like it was, and so you can fast forward multiple years later, two companies later, I was still gun shy on that, like putting myself out there. And so um, 2012, I had, you know, spoke at some really large events on behalf of the data center I worked for. And I did some interviews, but I, the interviews were great. And I, I mean, people were like, how do I know about you? Like, 
what are you, are you published anywhere? I'm like, no, that's not really my thing. And I, I started to try you a YouTube channel and like YouTube intimidated me, like hashtags and thumbnails and video. And like, I wasn't, I'm not a creator. I'm not a storyteller. And you know, what had happened was the fall of 2013. Uh, and it was actually my mom. Uh, I'm a mama's boy. My mom had kind of called me out and she said, Brian, you seemed like you stress out a lot about social media in this new role that you have as this evangelist. She's like, I just want to make sure that you're, you're keeping true to who you are and what you do that's great. And she's like, you've always been since you were little, unapologetically yourself. And as, as funny as it sounds, she's like, I don't even see a picture of you with a hat on in your social media posts. And, and I was like, oh, mom, you know, of course, I'm like, mom, you don't know anything about social media. Of course I'm being myself. Like, you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, and I hung up and I remember just sitting there and being like, she's right. And I walked into my bathroom and with a Sharpie, I actually wrote on the mirror in my bathroom, be yourself in big letters. And I said, you know what? This is the day. And I will tell you the thing that I didn't like about social media was I spent all day trying to craft the perfect post of what I thought people wanted to hear about me. And on that day, November 2nd, 2013 forward, I stopped trying to put out there what I thought people wanted to hear. And I just started telling my story who I was and what I learned. I didn't want to convey that I was an expert or a thought leader. I shared, hey, this was my experience. This is what I learned. And these were my results. Hopefully it helps. And my world changed, right? The, that, that spring, um, I was awarded the top 25 social business leader of the future uh, by The Economist, which at the time, my boss came in and threw it down on my desk. He's like, Apparently, people think what you're doing is pretty cool. Now, I will say, the CEO is like one of the smartest people I've ever met with. And I don't think he meant like derogatory, but he was kind of like, he was never one. Like, the reason I spoke at a lot of events is he would just get frustrated and be like, screw it, Brian, you speak. I'm flying on my private jet home. Like, that was, that was his mantra. Um, and I got that award. And a year later, uh, I was, I'd flown around to the TED Talks. They flew me around with all all these different social business leaders, all of them much older than I was, but I got this great exposure. And then I was really trying to, you know, I'd started a Google Plus hangout show and I started interviewing some of the people that were part of this thing. And then this thing called live streaming came out and um, it was, a, you know, the app for your phone. The first one was called Meerkat. Uh, it came out, you know, February, I, my first one was February 27th, uh, 2014. Uh, and I was in Barcelona, Spain working with Dell. I was actually working with Dell on a video project. And they, I had spent four days with Dell at Mobile World Congress, one of the largest um, mobile events in the world. And we were creating video content for four days. And this app came out where you could live stream to Twitter with one, you know, press the button. Uh, and funny enough, there's someone from Twitter that, that told me, he's like, Ashton Kutcher and Gary Vaynerchuk are on this app. Ryan, you should check it out. And I remember getting off the phone with him. I'm like, he thinks because those two guys are on it, I should like, when did I get into like that cool of an you know, like atmosphere? And tr trust me, I'm not that, not on that atmosphere, but it was, you know, it was one of those things. And so I pressed the button the very first time um, right outside the Dell booth at, um, on the conference floor and it went live and I, and I didn't put a title in it because I didn't know what I was doing. And I had one viewer, his name is Gary from Indiana. Um, he is now famous, although he does not know this. Um, he was my one viewer. It popped up Gary from Indiana. And I was like, Hey, Gary, how are you? I'm in you know, Barcelona, Spain at Mobile World Congress. And he was like, is that the Microsoft booth over there? Can you show me their new phone? And I remember being like, it is the Microsoft booth. And in my head, I was like, I just spent four days here capturing video content. And I didn't go over to that Microsoft booth to capture content. And it was my epiphany that live video was this ability to allow the audience to participate in what I was doing. Now, the story doesn't have a happy ending. I walked four feet. The Wi-Fi dropped out. Gary from Indiana deactivated his account a couple months later. And when I started to tell the story, I went back and tried to find who Gary was because it was such like a moment for me. And so then I, you know, I started really going all in on live video, doing multiple live videos a week. And then I started working with brands and influencers. And I got to work with I launched Dell, IBM, Samsung, SAP, HP, the UFC, Applebee's. I launched all of their, they built the strategy and I was the guinea pig of their very first live streaming projects. And it was a wild, you know, and all these people are like, man, you're an overnight success, Brian. And, you know, kudos to them because they were probably right because I was hiding all this like work that I had done in my previous life. And for them, I, I was kind of emerging on this marketing scene because of live video. And I started work and, and for me, the thing was I had learned because my mom had told me to put myself out there and be my unapologetic self and live video 
was not about being perfect. It was about putting yourself out there and being okay with admitting when things went wrong. I mean, a majority of the time, like people are like, we can't hear you or, or like your signal's bad or whatever that may be. And it was my perfect medium because I wasn't trying to be perfect. I was, it was just telling my story who I was. And I mean, it changed my life. I, I discovered my friends, my people, actually my current partner. Um, I discovered because I was a, the weather channel was the brand that I was loving what they were doing on live video. She happened to be the strategist behind that, who I went and you know, met her at a conference because of that. And what the, the whole thing came into was people would be like, wow, Brian, like you are a live streaming expert. You're a storyteller. And I'd be like, no, I'm not. And I'm not a live streaming expert. I found a medium that suited how I like to tell my story. And I would start to tell people that and they would get all excited. And I would say, I have two rules. Perfection's a fairy tale and control is an illusion. You can only control yourself. You cannot control what other people say, how people handle what you're doing. And people would be so inspired and so excited. And then they would come to see me speak the year later. And they would say, Brian, I was excited. I was motivated. But then I went back and I got busy with email. And then when I went to go live the first time, I didn't have my haircut. So then I waited to get my haircut. And then when I got my haircut, I changed jobs. So I didn't want to do, and they would come back to me and be like, I'm excited. Look at all these notes I took last year. I'm going to do it. And funny enough, it was an event. I, the five minutes before going on stage, I wrote, I typed up a new slide and just said, press the damn button. And I got up there and at the end, I just said, please, please the best time to put yourself out there is right now for just please press the damn button. And funny enough, it was the thing that resonated the most. And the way I look at it now is it has nothing to do really with video has a lot more to do with the first part of that story that I was telling was that, and this is the mindset that I want to put people in. And if you're a student, you're going to embrace this, but for you to convey it to older generations, you're going to need this knowledge. My dad raised me with son, your handshake is important. Your word is bond and let your work do the talking for you. That was my dad. My dad, one of the most successful people in the candy business space, entrepreneur. He grew a very large peanut brittle company uh, that sold, sold to a, a large worldwide corporation. And the thing about it is, my dad was right for a long time. But in 2020, if you're waiting to let your work do the, 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 the if you're waiting for your work to do the storytelling for you, you are going to be drowned out by the megaphone, the fakers till they make it, the un people selling unicorns and rainbows, and all those that are putting it out there. And so the way that I look at this is the old school way was, hey, let my work do the talking for you. The new school way is let people in and have access to you and put your story out there so that we can celebrate those that are doing good things. I'm a firm believer, even in these current times, that there are more good people doing good things than we know of. And it's because they're doing it in the shadows and the silence and they're, they're, they're kind of waiting for that exposure. And unfortunately, social media, you know, it's made the world smaller, but it's also given a megaphone to people that don't, shouldn't have the megaphone. And so that's where press the damn button is like, it's my call to arms of like, if you're a good person doing great things, it's time to tell your story. If you're not a good person doing good things, it's time to reevaluate things and, and maybe try to do something different. But that's where press the damn button is. It's, I mean, it's, the, it's, it's everything to me. It's, it's, it's ingrained in me from November 2nd, 2013 till today. Um, and I've kind of matured and figured out lots of different ways in that. But it's also something that I think of right now. Like, I mean, there is no better time. We are living in a very forgiving, like, you know, virtual digital space where everyone's trying to figure out what this whole new world looks like. And like right now is the time that you have to put yourself out there. You know, it's more than a personal brand. It's, it's your, it's your story. It's your reputation. It's, it's your credit score. It's your first impression. It's your, you know, legacy. It's all of those combined, which can feel overwhelming, but I think it's a lot less overwhelming once you start, you know, integrating it into your world. I know that that last portion is a clip that I listened to a few times while editing this episode, and I took really good notes. What I appreciate most about Brian is that he provides tangible strategies for moving forward. Pressing that button, whether it's to type, create audio, or video versions of your story is never easy. It requires confidence. And I love his strategy for identifying and writing out the risks and rewards. Like so many of the other guests that have shared on the podcast, when we list out our fears and risks, they become much smaller than we make them out to be in our heads. I remember this was also a strategy shared by the educators or the learning experience designers at Design39. They said that before starting any new project together, 
they listed out what success and failure would look like, giving one another an opportunity to empathize with their fears, but also their motivations. As Brian and I reflected back on what the students shared with us, I asked him what strategies and advice he would share with students who are reflecting on their own fears when it comes to sharing their story. You know, I think that's the beauty of you don't need to know what you need, what, what you want to do or what you want to be. I'm, you know, I was, I, that was something that was harped on me all my life. And funny enough, my dad, um, not on social media, not, not big into the social media space, but my dad, uh, because he was very successful and he ran this company, this peanut brittle company, um, and I was the oldest of three sons, there was almost this like weird underlying silent thing amongst my friends because my dad was my mom was a pta president my dad was the the commissioner of the the baseball and sports leagues in our in virginia beach where we grew up there was almost this like thing of like brian's set because he's just going to follow in his dad's footsteps to work for the the company the the business but it wasn't until i was a senior just people started admitting that to me and i was and because people would be like oh why are you trying so hard about college like getting in on you know probation like like i got in um they're like, aren't you just going to work like, in your family? I mean, look how successful. And interestingly enough, my dad had never presented that as the thing. It was, hey, you're going to, you, each of you three sons are unique and you're going to find your path. If it ends up leading to working with my company and my brand, we're going it, to, it's something that's open. But it was never one of those things that was like, in, 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 you know, it was never even really like kind of blessed down on me. And I'm very thankful for that now. I mean, it, it took me many years to even like, realized that he could have easily pushed me into that and I would have had the money and the, the you know, the cars, the house, the, and working in a job and a business that I would had no, I would have never really found myself. And so the piece of that that's also interesting is like, I mean, I was, I worked for UPS. I was getting milk that got me a security clearance. And then I raised my hand on a Friday morning first that got me promoted. And then I decided to take a massive risk and give up all the security clearance. I mean, the highest civilian clearance that you could get is what I had, which was worth, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars at the time. Gave all of that up because I had this vision of like, if I don't go chase this technology evangelist thing now, I never will because I know myself that I could be very complacent. I could still work and like, I mean, I'd be, cybersecurity would have you know, been amazing in that sense. And I think there's, there's something beautiful in this idea that like luck does play a role in this whole thing. I don't care what anyone says. The curiosity and the luck has allowed me to kind of discover my path. And it's also interesting because as a keynote speaker, as a podcaster, you know, even as I you know, share these stories now, like I will tell you, like telling my story, putting myself out there. I've been a guest on 200 plus podcasts. I've done over 500 podcast episodes myself as a host. I've become better at telling my story and painting a picture. I was not good early on. Like I didn't go to school for any of this. This was not like, and like not only did YouTube intimidate me, it still intimidates me, right? Like, and I think this is a, a big place for people is that we will often hear, and I, and I think even as we were talking to those two Stanford students, one of the things for me is like, okay, where is the audience or the brands that you want to reach? Go create content there. And I am against that because as soon as you're trying to do something that is way outside where your comfort, you're going to make every excuse to not do it. And I will make the argument that if I hadn't done a Google Hangout show in 2012, 2013, I would not be the keynote speaker that I am today. And it was because it got me into this like, oh, I can handle live video and interviewing. And then it, it, it allowed when live video came to the phone that sent to Twitter for me to kind of just jump on it. Like I had 12,000 people watching me walk the streets of South by Southwest, March 2nd of 2014. Like it was like, and like asking me questions. And like, you know, I remember like all of a sudden my, my Twitter followers went from like 5,000 to 15,000 to 30,000. And I was like, what did I, like, all, like I didn't do anything different. And it was like the medium of live video was what suited me, right? And, and interestingly enough, podcasting is the medium that I love the most, which you can tell by all those, um, you know, episodes and things that I've done. And part of the reason that for podcasting is also it's, you, it's, you have this idea, I, ability to kind of put things out there. It's, you know, not as, you know, confronting as a lot of other mediums. And so my advice for a lot of those that are young is, you know, it's not about, you don't have to know everything. You don't, you know, I remember I two rules, perfection's a fairy tale, control's an illusion, but you have to start putting yourself out there. It's about baby steps, like trying to see, like, I would have never 
thought that it, talking about ADHD was something to be part of my brand. But I was diagnosed ADHD at 31 years old. It was a day I will never forget. I remember walking out of the doctor's office feeling as though this giant monkey was taken off my back. It was this discovery of, Brian, you are different. Brian, you're not crazy. Brian, you work differently and it's okay, right? I, I, I don't believe I completed a book cover to cover my first 31 years of my life. And I, there was plenty of books that I wanted to read and I would sit down and I just didn't have it. And looking back on my life, my mom realized that, you know, at 11 years old, I was diagnosed ADHD. But at the time, the stigma was if you medicate your kids, you're a bad parent. And I went through high school and college feeling as though something was wrong that I couldn't pay attention that I like, I love, like I remember sitting in like computer science class and communication class. And I was even in these media studies classes and I'm like, how am I not getting an A and like reading the things that I, like, it was such a, and so at 31 being diagnosed and, and being medicated, it was, it was such an experience, but it was also one of those things like, Oh my God, it's like a scarlet letter. Like, Oh, I got, I got the ADHD, right? Like I, I'm, and over, over the next couple of years, I started to you know, get a little bit more comfortable of what that meant. And my youngest brother was actually diagnosed before I was, which is how I got the, the, the courage to kind of ask my doctor and that side. And I was on stage one time. I remember I was actually at uh, VMworld um, at Moscone Center in San Francisco. And the, the founder of Netflix was actually coming up to speak after I was. And it was this very intimidating um, talk. And it was one of those moments where you like, I kind of knew like at that piece where I'm like, I'm not intimidated at all. And everyone's telling me I should be like, there's 12,000 people in the audience. And like, I'm excited to get up there. And I told this entire story and then they had the Q and a afterwards. And someone mentioned something about like, um, Brian, we love your story. And we love, and, I, and at the time I was talking about like um, recruiting millennials and where millennials fit. That was a big part of my brand at the time. And they were like, you know, as a millennial, what's something that people have to get comfortable with that you're not used to. And I was like, well, in front of all of you, getting comfortable with us real admitting our vulnerabilities. Like I was diagnosed ADHD a couple of years back and I remember saying it and like, what is coming out of your mouth, Brian? Like, what do you do? Like, like, but it was like, cause the question was asked and the, the lady, she, uh, you know, she paused and she's like, I didn't expect that as an answer. Thank you so much. Right. And, that, and we moved on. And at the end I got off stage and moved over to the side and a lady came up to me with a, with her phone and she was on FaceTime with her son. And she's like, um, my son is going through, um, he's on the spectrum. And um, he's going through some difficult times. And she's like, I started crying when I heard you admit about your ADHD and how, how it just was something that was part of who you were. She's like, would you mind talking to him? Which is like very awkward. There's a long line of people. Like, and I'm like, and you know, I'm like, she's crying. I'm like, hey man, what's up? I was like, I was like, you know what I realized? Like the more I tell people about who I am and what I'm about, the less ammo the trolls or the bullies have and the more people get to know me. And I was like, life has got a lot easier. And he was like, I mean, it was, super, it was one of those things where he, he was like, you know, and he was younger and I was young at the time, you know, like 20, I don't know what I was, I was probably 30, 33, I think at the time. And he was probably 21, 22. Um, and he was like, oh, thanks. You know, cool. Like, you know, whatever it was. And I remember going back to my hotel room, hotel room that day and was like, you know what? ADHD is gonna be part of my brand. I am not gonna shy away from this. I'm gonna own every aspect of it. And the reason I tell that whole story that way is not because I don't want you to put your vulnerabilities and air your dirty laundry out right away. Like that's not what, this is about baby steps. But for me, if I hadn't been comfortable starting to tell my story, I wouldn't have got to the point where I could admit the ADHD. And then I was able to find that that resonated with people. And then I was able to integrate that in part of my story. And I will tell you, I can, I can equivalent multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars of business of people that will put in their emails Brian, I wasn't aware of who you were. I started following you. And then you started sharing about your ADHD and your love for being a dad. And I knew I just had to work for you. And I've just been waiting for an opportunity. And people will talk about like, hey, you need hundreds of thousands of followers. You need to be all these great things. Honestly, the things that get me the most about a business is me being very open about my love for being a dad and some of the struggles that I've gone through on that side. And so that's where I look at for the youth and like, you know, the Stanford students was like, I take so much joy in the fact that they want joy in their lives. Cause I was not, I was not that mature at that point. Like I was like, I want money and cars. Like I, I mean, I still have it on my Jeep Wrangler right now. I have a, a Hummer H1, a 1995 Hummer H1 was the vehicle I always said I would get before I turned 40. It was like my like thing. Well, I turned 40 next year. I, that's not on my radar, but it's partially because I figured out in life, there's so much more traveling and, and the world that I live in. But I, 
like that's where I was focused, right? I, I put, I mean, I, I glue gunned it to my Jeep. So that it was like, Brian, keep your eye on the prize. But when you can take joy and you can say, Hey, I just want to be curious. I want to t- open to all opportunities, right? And like, I could have easily lied and said I knew cybersecurity and, and these terms, went into the interview and got blasted and never got it, right? I was just like, no, but I don't know it. Like, that's kind of who I am. It allowed me to go in an interview and get that job, right? I threw up my hand and tried it out. I, you know, I decided to leave the government, you know, at the time and, and explore this opportunity. And I think that's kind of like the beauty of where we're at right now. Like, I do believe, like, and this is hard to say right now, but I do believe we're living in the greatest time in history. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter. We have the ability to tell our story and find our people. We have the ability to carve our own, our own niche. We have our ability to work wherever we want to work. It is so beautiful, but it will not happen unless you give access to, to let you allow people to have access to who you are and what you're all about. And so that's where you know, like I, I shy away from the personal brand um, being the label, although it's kind of the trendy thing because like, for me, if you would have told me five years ago, I didn't need a borrow personal brand. I'm like, I'm not a marketer, advertiser. Like personal branding sounds like, that's like boring and like awkward and like what? But if someone would have told you like, hey, like you think the power of a handshake is important and your dad said like your word is bond. I'm like, for sure. Like every person I've ever worked with, even the ones that like we've disagreed, I've made sure we left on positive terms. Someone would have said, you need to make sure that's out there so people could see that when they Google you or they discover you. I would have been open to it. And so that's where I look at it. I'm like, it's not as much personal branding. It's more like press the damn button, put yourself out there and kind of let people have access to who you are. More often than not, the primary reason we don't press the damn button is fear. And that's why when you begin to understand the mindset that Brian encourages, this idea that perfection is a fairy tale and control is an illusion, you realize that your first try is never your last try and that you can and will only grow and get better with practice. With the news and many things we've experienced in 2020, it doesn't always feel like we're living through one of the greatest times in history. However, through documenting the work we do, the interests we have and who we are, Our stories can open opportunities we never even knew existed and connect us with people who are not always ones that we might just happen to come across in our day-to-day. We're going to pause here, and over the course of the next week, I invite you to test out some of the ideas that Brian's shared. I invite you to press the damn button. To get started, you can download a free guide by visiting www.askmissq.com. It will walk you through the beginning stages of identifying some areas that you can begin to share. In part two of this episode, we'll talk about the future trends that Brian is seeing and how we can best prepare for those today, and more importantly, how leaders can begin to create a culture where people can grow and thrive. It's your turn to join the conversation by sharing what you enjoyed or what questions you still have. In a world where time and attention are so valuable, thank you for choosing to listen and for being a part of our Sprint to Success with Design Thinking community. 